imagine it in your head before you can see it. And that's where the believability comes into play, where you need to be able to see, like, what is my next step to get to where I want to go? You're listening to The Wholehearted Podcast, and I'm your host, Cohen Tan. I'm on a mission to set hearts free and inspire people to break out of their self-limitations to create the life of their dreams. Each episode, I speak to people around the world who live with vigor, courage, and authenticity. And I hope their stories can inspire you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Podcast, where we speak to people who are living life courageously and to inspire you. And today I speak to one of my good friends, Yasmin Carter. She is a persuasive story and sales coach, host of the Sales Story Podcast. Yasmin enables leaders to connect, stand out and sell their ideas with ease, all while inspiring their team, attracting more clients and growing their businesses and careers. Now, she's on a mission to help more leaders learn how to fall in love with selling. I love that. And so that they can live a life wilder than their wildest dreams, all while making the impact that they were destined to. For the past decade, Yasmin has helped senior leaders and sales teams in over 75 Fortune 500 companies and governments learn how to share persuasive stories that sell. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Cohen. I'm so excited to be here. I'm always so happy to speak to you. And you know what? Before I continue, I just want to congratulate you on your recent award of the Certified Speaking Professional. Wow. Tell us how you feel about that. Uh, I feel very excited. So when I first started my speaking business, um, it was about three years ago. It was just before the pandemic. And I remember attending the Asian Professional Speaking Association, which both you and I are part of. And there was a massive convention and they were celebrating these people who had this thing called a CSP. And I didn't really understand what it was, but what I could see on the stage is there was a lot more men than women. And I was like, if we're all in this business, how come some people get recognized and some people don't? And when I started to dig into it, I realized the criteria I didn't think was that complicated. and I actually got it done in three years versus in five years because of the fact that like I just did the math of it. And it also triggered something that like I wanted to, to show is that um, according to like statistics in the US, at least we don't have much benchmarks globally, only 12% of women founded businesses make over $100,000 a year. And I wanted to see like, hey, like why do we have an issue? And then also, like, how can we change this? And how can I be part of the, you know, helping people see if we have more role models of what is possible, then people aspire to do and be and become bigger things as well. Wow, 12%. And that's a very low number. Have you ever done any research into why that may be the case? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. It's research done with so many different researchers that I've kind of read the literature. And it comes down to if I had to summarize the core of it, is around access to more money conversations. Uh, and that doesn't only apply to the entrepreneurship world, it also applies in the corporate world, which is why in many cases women get paid less because women are not used to asking, you know, how much do you get paid? And when I am coaching an executive leader and I ask them, you know, you know which grade are you in? Like, what is, what is negotiable? They're like, oh, it's only this. And I, and I realized they don't actually know that you can negotiate way many things in terms of stock options, negotiate with regards to leave, negotiate with terms of benefits, all these different things. So their packages actually are actually lower than a man would have. The second thing, we have a lot of stories that women struggle with and trauma around money. And our money stories impact how we show up, what we ask for, what we think we're allowed to ask for, and what we think as good little girls is selfish and something that we shouldn't yeah. be asked for. And then the third thing is actually people don't know how to negotiate. And that's why I love teaching sales because there's an element of narrative that we have pick up, but then there's also an element of like skill set, like having understanding what happens to get someone to buy into you and building that muscle to feel more and more comfortable around that as well. 
Wow, wow. I really like that we just jump straight into this, right? This is very much part of being a wholehearted person, right? It's like the the ability to believe in your own worthiness and your ability to negotiate for that and your willingness to um, to stand up and uh, be counted and to negotiate for it and to realize that you, know, you are worthy. I think that's such a big conversation to have. That segues very nicely into this question that we always ask our guests. What does being wholehearted mean to you, Yasmin? So for me, being wholehearted means being in alignment and also honoring the desires that you have. All of us, you know, whether you believe in God or you believe in spirit or the universe, like all of us have special desires that, that we want, that we desire to have. And they're not bad and they're not good. They're just things that we want. And oftentimes when we try to hide it, when we try to use and mask some of our trauma, to not show up and not to show up in alignment of what we want, to take action on what we want, and to start operating from that place, then we're not being wholehearted. Why do you think people um, are not willing to show up and in alignment with what they really, really want? Is it because they are told that they don't, they shouldn't get what they want, they shouldn't ask for too much? Or what are some of the messages that people have been told that getting, is getting in the way of them going for what they want? So I come from a lens that's quite unique because my background is in child psychology. I actually studied children from the age of zero to six. And mm. most people don't know this, but most of our, our trauma comes at around six to seven years old. And that comes from our parents. It comes from our teachers. It comes from our school. It comes from our culture. It comes from our religion. And in the Asian context, the way I was raised is that I'm an adult, I know, you're a child, you follow. And the thing is, we grow up and we still believe that, even though we are now adults, but we still operate from that perspective. At least for me, I did that, right? So when you have all these different messages that we pick up as children that we think are truth, we don't think to challenge it because we've been programmed around believing those things. Um, and that's one component of it. And the second thing as well is the people that you hang out with. Because the people you hang out with don't challenge that perspective and that narrative, then you're going to stay again in that cycle because you think it's not possible. And to give you a simple story of this is I remember when in my first job ever, um, a lot of my colleagues were complaining. They're like, oh, management sucks. People are really shit. And I'm just like, okay, like, why and because like I come like I I, um, I struggle with dyslexia um, so I always think that like when I was a kid I thought I was really stupid because I would spend more time <laughs> learning something than most people uh, I would just like I'd ask like okay why like wh wh why is it not working and like what can I do to make it work next time and I remember at least in my, my work environment, nobody was actually asking people on why things were a certain way. We just assumed it was a certain way. And one thing specific is um, a lot of companies at the time were like financing, like sport races. If you did the standard charter or did the OCBC cycle, they would pay for things. And I remember going up, uh, like telling my colleagues, like, we should do this as a company. And they're like, oh yeah, but it's so expensive and the company won't pay for us. And I'm like, have we asked them? And they're like, no. So then they gave me the job to ask them because I was the youngest and like the one that was like different. And then the company happily paid for it because it was linked to like, you know, engagement of, of the team and so forth. But I think it's just like that narrative of thinking like, I cannot ask, I must be given. Mm. And if I ask, it's selfish and it's rude. And it's a very different way of looking at things. Yeah, I guess it's also because the kind of messages we've been um, sent as, as kids, right? It's like when we ask certain questions like, you know, why is the sky blue? Uh, we are told that, ah, why are you asking so many questions? Why are you asking so many questions? And I actually have my own perspective about that. I really think that the, the art of asking has been educated out of us, you know, in the sense that uh, when we go to school, uh, our education system is predicated on having the answers rather than having the questions. And if you ask a question in class and your classmates will look at you and say why are you asking this question are you stupid or something so I think really um, uh, this is so powerful I, I mean it's just, uh, there's so much to dig into here yeah I love your point about like oh are you stupid 
well, I actually thought I was stupid. So for me, it was like, <laughs> oh, I'm stupid. I must pass, right? So like, I think that incident, it came from just like, just thinking that they were right. Like I was dumb. Uh, but I wasn't. I would just get the mistakes wrong because I would see the words differently. So when I would answer the question in exams, like I was so clear, like I, I was getting it wrong. And like to give an example of what's happening right now, I'm like I'm learning Spanish, oh. and and like I get the like I know the right answer, but then I pick the wrong one because it looks right at the time. And I now when it happens, I'm laughing because I'm just like, oh how silly! I thought I was dumb. I'm just dyslexic. That's okay as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean. This is very interesting, right? I sense a, a sense of freedom that comes from you when you're when you felt like, oh, I'm stupid, so I might might as well just ask, right? So there's this sense of freedom that comes from you know uh, accepting that you are you know in inverted commas stupid or dumb. Um, some people would um, would have felt a lot of shame around that. So did you ever feel shame, or did you always have this sense of okay, I'll just ask anyway? Yeah, of course. Everybody feels on one spectrum shame and guilt. And those are the, the drivers that like make us do everything in our life. We're all always operating from that space of shame and guilt. We think we like to think like, oh, I'm following my pleasure and following you know what my bliss is. But what will actually drive us to get off our butt is really the shame and the guilt. Um, and I don't know, like I just in this example of like asking the questions, it didn't come for shame and guilt because I would feel more shame and guilt. Uh, if I failed, right? So it turns out, like, who was the stakeholder I was more afraid of? It was not my classmate. It was my parents. Mm. So you have to also think about contextually where the shame and guilt lies more, because that will be actually the driver for us to change our behavior uh, and move forward. Wow, this is so deep. This is so deep. And so, tell us a little bit more about how did you get get from that um, little girl who thought you were dumb to um, certified speaking professional, and you know, um, having also uh, run a very successful agency business. Tell us more about this journey. I think if I look back at like the chapters, it was just at each point like a small decision that I had to make. And both you and I were alumni of Isaac. So I remember I had um, like um, my leader, Temer, which I love him. He's literally the reason why like I ended up in this world. Is he kept on like, he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And that's why I'm very big on like having in your court the right mentors, hiring the right coaches. Because if you do not <laughs> see it, and then you think that you're something, you don't have someone to help you see it differently. It's, it's very different. So for him, um, he got me really interested to go and travel. And at the time, there was an African leadership conference that were happening in Ghana. Wow. And he was like, you should go. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. And at the time, before university started, I had been working for six months. So I had saved enough money to be able to buy for my flight. And my university chapter sponsored the conference fee, right? So essentially, wow. like, there was no objection. I didn't have any money because that was there. And I remember feeling really inspired because there was about 400 young leaders from all over, mostly Africa, but also from as far as Holland all the way up to, like, Hong Kong, super, you know, diverse. And over, like, the course of, like, a five or six days, every day they were talking about big world issues and big problems, and I remember walking into that conference thinking, yeah, that's nice. But like, if I can do something just for my community, like I'll be good. And at the end on day four or day five, I was like, shit, the difference between me and everyone in this room is they believe they can do it. And that's when I discovered my first limiting story that actually I didn't believe that I was good enough. So who decided, who gave me the stamp that it's me would be good enough it had to be me. Like I had to choose me. And that's when, when I came back, I ended up leading the national learning program for the year. I ended up becoming the regional manager. And because I took just like, at the time, it seemed scary, but there were small steps. The small steps added up and that changed my belief on what was possible. And even when, for example, when I got into the working world, I was in the oil and gas industry, um, I remember at one moment I looked around at everyone's job and think 
I don't want anyone's job. And it was really like scary because like, if I didn't want the director's job at my department, I didn't want the CEO's job, I didn't want any department job, then I had to make a decision. But of course I didn't have any ideas. So I ended up following my desire and I ended up launching a social enterprise which uh, would raise the equivalent of my, my salary for female entrepreneurs in Timor-Leste. Yeah. And at the time, it was about like $50,000. And I would, to do that, to get people to give me money, I would cycle the world's toughest mountain bike race. And I am not a mountain biker. I <laughs> 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 thought it was courageous, but I was just like, not really because of all the other small steps that just made it feel like it was just the natural next step. Anyway, fast forward, um, like I launched a business, uh, I sold the shares of my business away, I started down the speaking business. But if I look back, they were all very small moments that just compounded and, and accumulated. And I think most people, they will see the end result or the middle of the journey and think mm-hmm. I will never be like that. But it's not a one overnight thing, it's a lot of small mm-hmm. decisions that accumulate. And I'm sure the same thing for you as well. Yeah, it is, it is. A lot of people ask me for, you know, like, Cohen, how did you go from that, you know, depressed um, young kid to, you know, the expressed person that you are today? And um, it's like, do you, do you have a day? <laughs> or maybe two? <laughs> like, um, there's so many stories and just so many things that is layered, you know, to get to this point. I wish I could just give you, like, the, the panacea, the silver bullet, but there really isn't one, right? And I just want to touch on something uh, that I found very intriguing and fascinating for me. In, I mean, I, I, I've heard of you speaking about this before. It's called the ladder of believability. And I believe you teach that in your workshops. Um, so how did you, you know, find um, things that you that can give you faith, that you can believe in yourself and slowly build from there? Because I think uh, belief is something that is built um, a little step at a time. Uh, besides, of course, your mentor from Isaac. And uh, how did you have that self-belief? So for me, what's interesting is like, whenever we have our desires, no matter what they are, usually we're here and the desire is all the way up here. Oh, yeah. And like, oh, like, for example, like one of my desires is to be a New York Times bestseller, right? It's a desire. I've had a desire for like seven years, but like, I know I want to do this. But in order for me to do this, I need to build my you know, thought leadership. I need to do my research. I need to put myself out there. I need to build my following. I need to do so many things to get to this status of one of the, the, the status I have. So if I try to do that right now, I would fail. And I would fail because I would have to unravel and unpack so many different stories that are in the way. So when I look at the ladder of believability, I'm looking at it as like, okay, that's cool. That's my end, that's my desire. But what needs to happen at the first step to help me get there? It's like, oh, well, if I want to be this thought leader that works with millions of people, then maybe I want to impact life, right? And once I get that comfort level of doing five, then maybe I can work with 10. And now I'm comfortable with like 500, right? Which is very different than my starting point. But then I have to also build the skill set of writing. So then, therefore, I have to write. It's crazy. Like, if I want to be a writer, I have to write more. So uh, (laughs) at one point, it was like starting off by like doing a LinkedIn challenge where I write every single day for 30 days. Wow. And I started writing. I realized, oh, I'm getting better. This is kind of crazy. And then now I'm also like doing that, but I'm also writing chapters of a book. And I'm pretty sure that my first book will not become a New York Times bestseller. But the first book will give me the practice and the muscle of writing and figuring out how to structure what's happening, how to make a good hook, all these different things. Then mm-hmm. the second time around, I will, ha- will become more easy and more natural. And I'll know who I have to have on my team to become the New York Times bestseller. And the same thing applies when it comes to making money, right? Like, well, I remember in my first job, I made a certain amount of salary. And that was like, at the time, like, oh my gosh, I made nothing, like I made nothing. I made like part-time gigs and side hustles to like making like 
all of a sudden like four times more in one year. And it was just like, wait, you can make four times more and like work less? Like what a crazy concept. And I don't remember when it was, it makes me about like four or five years ago where I made what I made initially in my first job in a, a year, in a month. And that was for me like, oh my gosh, like that's possible. But Whoa. it wouldn't have been possible unless I had started and I had built from there. Fantastic. Wow, what a great story, right? It's like it's it's it reminds me of the saying, how do you eat an elephant um one 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 bit at a time, right? But of course my saying is don't eat an elephant. Why do you want to eat an elephant in the first place? They're so cute. <laughs> don't eat an elephant. But I really like your ladder of believability. I think that's even more powerful. Um but I really um from what I just heard from you, right? Um so would would you be willing to settle this this discussion for once and for all? Is seeing is believing? Or believing is seeing. Seeing as which one is correct? Believing is seeing, because you have to have that visual. You have to imagine it in your head before you can see it, and that's where the believability comes into play. Where you need to be able to see, like, what is my next step to get to where I want to go? Because if I had to tell you the life I live today. The twenty-one-year-old Yasmin, when she wrote it down, would think like that is insane. Because I wrote down, I want to build businesses, I want to sell businesses, I want to wow. people, and I'm just like, wait, like I'm living the life that I had wrote down, that I thought was crazy and impossible, but it's because I could, in my mind, imagine it and then, like, see it in a sense, and then believe that it was possible for me. Yeah, I know Yasmin, I'm, I've known you for, I think, like a few years now. And uh, I've always been a big fan of yours. And I think three words that really come to mind, three adjectives that I would use to describe you is uh, free. You're very free. There's a lot of, there's a sense of freedom about you. You, are, you, are, you, you, you take your work seriously, but you don't take yourself serious, that seriously. And I really like that. Um, I also like the, the, the second word is joy. I really, I feel that every time I talk to you, I feel very, very joyful. I, I feel that your enthusiasm is uh, contagious. And the third one is actually, um, I actually it's not one word; it's two words: kick ass. Like I think you, you are kick ass, right? You're, you, I mean, you rock, right? It's like you, you say I'll go to something, you just go get it, and um, you, you always do it with so much joy and fun, and and I think that that's such a great combination. Have you always been like that, or is it something you have to learn? No, I think I was. Like, so there's a song that I remember hearing ages ago um, by this artist called Kenan, right? Uh, and he talks about, like, slavery and okay. how, like, you're chained up and you can't be free. And it really, mm-hmm. like, when, he, when I heard the song, it really hit me that, like, actually the only person who is caging ourselves up is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the way I describe it, I call it the invisible jury that we have created in our heads. Uh, and my journey was really hard. Like I had like my mom, her Asian heritage, and then I had my dad's Arab heritage. And then I went to like an English Western school. And then I had my aunties and my uncles. And but even in Egypt, like the doorman's opinion mattered. So like you're constantly having to operate like from everyone else to make them feel happy and to make them feel good. And that is in itself like quite restrictive because you're not actually choosing what you want for yourself, but you're trying to operate in terms of being good for everyone else. And the more I realize how many layers of trauma that picks up for you as an individual, and the more you have to choose at every single point which do you want to believe in? Because there's no right or no wrong. But the question that I use to guide me is like, does this serve me? And if it doesn't serve my desires, what I want, what I was created to be here on earth for, then I need to change some of those stories in my head and pick something that's much more going to help me get forward. And that work doesn't stop. Not like one day I'm done. And like I'm constantly finding new versions of it over and over again. And it's interesting because that actually, once you start to get that, you realize that you have that power to shift and choose and shift and choose. Because the way I look at it is anything that makes you feel bad 
it is something that you do not choose. You're trying to operate for somebody else's perspective. But things that make you feel good, that makes you feel comfortable, that's you being you. That's you embracing you, being wholehearted, being in alignment. Um, and that's something that's really hard to do. But that you have a choice to decide how you want to operate and how you want to look at life through. As you face the challenges of living up to your own and others' expectations, you may sometimes feel lost and lonely. However, know that you're not alone. We are here to support you in leaning courageously into your heart's promptings. If you'd like more tips, resources, and to learn more about how you can live more wholeheartedly, or to book me as a speaker, trainer, or coach, please go to coentan.com. That's C-O-E-N-T-A-N dot com. Yeah, I think that, that that's very, very powerful a distinction here, right? You always have a choice. But of course, I think one of my pet peeves is whenever I hear, you know, people I coach and people, participants in my workshops and they're like, oh, Cohen, you don't understand. I have no choice. I have no choice. And whenever people say I have no choice, I think they're operating from a place of fear. And they're operating from a place of, you know, um, if I were to make this choice, they're afraid of the repercussions. And I really love what you just said, right? Like this internal, what's it, what's it, a word? Internal jury, right? It's like inner jury. I love it. I love it. I mean, it's so, it's so um, visual. It's almost like I can feel almost like a, a, a group of people, you know, a council of people around you and going, mm. like, I really love it. Right? It's like, <laughs> I can imagine how, how debilitating that can be and, uh, I mean, I, I can so relate to that. I can so relate to yeah. that. We all have our own versions of our jury. We just are not aware of who sits on it. And for me, like, once you start to discover who is sitting there, and do they should they have a seat? Like, why does my doorman matter to me? But somehow, when I was in my 20s, I realized, oh, wow. Like, I didn't want to do certain things or dress certain ways because of fear of judgment of my doorman. And, like, where did that come from? <laughs> like, like my culture and my society, right? Wow, you know, I think this, this question just came to my head, right? So thank you so much for you know, inviting us into your, your, your inner world and really um, seeing how you process and see the world. And I, I, I just want to continue on this, on this thread of this like inner jury. It's like deciding who gets to sit on that jury. And um, it's like suddenly I just give myself this permission to go, okay, you know what? You're, I'm going to take you out of the jury. I'm going to put people who matters, people who I really love, people whose whose opinions I care for, and people who whose um, how do I say whose 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 advice and inputs I really value. So, can I ask you a question? Like, is it a conscious um, process for you to decide to you know change yeah. the people in your jury? And what's what's the process like? And how did you go about selecting them? So. The one thing to note, the reason why it's really confusing for many of us is the people that are on our jury are people that care about us. They're people who raise us. So sometimes it's not because they don't care. It's that they're operating from their own limitation. Mm. And, you know, most of us on our jury, we have our mother, we have our father, we have, you know, depending on if you're a Westerner or like less, like the cultural component also matters because in the Asian, you have everyone else's opinion because your grandmother has an opinion, your auntie, your uncle, everybody seems to have an opinion <laughs> on your decisions. Um, so that's where the biggest first conflict happens is the people who sit on our board, people who care about us. So it's not about them not caring. It's about, does this person that I, I choose to believe, does this person have the life that I want to have? So I come mm. from a household where my parents had a very dysfunctional relationship. They would mm. always argue, they would always fight. They were never violent and physical, but they had a lot of passive aggression, right? So when my mom gives me advice about relationships, yes, she loves me, yes, she cares, but she doesn't have the relationship that I want to have. Mm. So her perspective on that topic, I filter out because I want to get advice from a couple that is in a healthy relationship, that have good communication, who have the model that I want to go after and I aspire to be. So it's really not about someone caring or not caring. It's about seeing, but do they have the things that I want to have? And that's why when people start off even in their, their careers or, or their businesses, we ask our friends, 
But if your friend doesn't have the job, the seniority, the buy-in, or if, for example, they have a business, they don't have the money, the revenue, and so forth, then you're asking the wrong people to sit on your board who may not have that experience, that context, that understanding of what you are drawn to do. And that's where we have a choice always to like realize you can still care about me, but does this topic, are you an expert on the topic or not? And then I have a selective board for different topics. Wow, I love it. I love it. The question here uh, for, for listeners back home is, does this person have the type of life that I want? What a powerful question to ask, right? Um, to decide whether this person deserves a seat on your inner jury. Are there, are there any other questions you ask besides that? No, the, the first thing is that the main question that I use, that I use in actually all my coaching or even for myself is does this serve me, right? And I'm always going back because like my desires of all, they change. Not really that much, but they, they get much more like, they get bigger actually over time, mm -hmm. right? But sometimes I have the wrong behavior. I have the wrong belief. I have like the lack of skill to help me get there. Because yes, there are many different options, but if it doesn't serve me, then why do I want to spend more time and more energy on something that does not help me move forward? And that happens on micro and also bigger decisions. So that's my guiding question always. Wow, that's so, so wise. And um, I, I think the, the comment I want to make is that, um, remember I said that you are, I really admire you for your freedom, but that freedom comes with a lot of discipline, a lot of inner processing, a lot of self-awareness, a lot of um, um, making choices, making empowered choices that gives you freedom. And I really think that, that um, that's something that we all can learn from. Many people think, oh, you know, she's she's always so happy. She feels like she's so free. Or maybe, of course, you know, maybe she things are easy for her. And maybe that's a misconception that people always often, often have. And they don't realize that these inner processes, these inner thought processes that go into creating that freedom. Yeah, 100%. Cool, cool, cool. So, I mean, I want to talk about when you made the pivot from selling off your agency business and deciding that you want to get, get into speaking business, right? It's like, that must be so terrifying for you, you know, having spent you know, a, a good amount of your, of your youth, right? Um, building that business and I'm sure no, no, no little amount of effort as well. How easy or difficult was it for you to let it go? So it was interesting because uh, at the time that this happened, um, I was taking care of my auntie and my auntie had four stage cancer. Death is something that is such a great teacher. Most people fear it, but it really is a reminder that every single one of us is going to be gone, right? Our time on this earth is limited. And when you're with somebody and you're taking care of them and you're realizing that their timeline is much faster than perhaps yours is, it really gives you perspective. So, when I was taking care of my aunt, one day she looked at me and she's like, Yasmin, you're miserable. And I was like, what? She's like, you're, you're miserable. I can see you. You wake up in the morning. You don't, you're not as energetic. You're not as excited about things. Um, and then she asked me a question that was really like shocking because I didn't expect her to ask this. She says, you know, I can see you trying, but it's not where you're supposed to go. And that's not where you're supposed to be when you quit and I was like huh I'm not a quitter I, I always follow through I always finish things and she's like yes but you don't need to be there you don't have like you're not you don't have one option mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the only way forward you can start and build many things so when will you quit and I realized that like for her, it was not quitting in terms of being a quitter, but it's also being able to get to a point where you realize this choice that I made is not aligned to what I want. And I'm either quitting on my dreams or I'm quitting on the notion of being a quitter. Wow. And that was a huge like, moment. And I, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't get it at the time. I'm not gonna pretend like I was wise and deep or anything. I was just like, I, I wasn't just a character to keep quiet because I had to rush off to a meeting. 
So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Six months, six months, six months. Maybe that you forget, right? But then the more I thought about it, the more I was reflecting on it, like I realized, wow, she actually has a point. Like I could be doing this, but I could be doing many other things and I could be living multiple lives. And at that time, I attended a Tony Robbins event called Unleash the Power Within. Okay, so it's not this one day where like you're meditating yes. and you're all about decisions and like choosing and like, and then he asks you to think about the decision that you've been stalling on. And I close my eyes, I start meditating and it's so clear. Like it was so clear that because I didn't see it because I was holding on to the story of I'm not a quitter, that I was forgetting what I was actually missing out on. Now, I did not quit straight away. I'm not like that. I don't have the courage to be like, boom, I'm walking away. But because I already knew that, I started asking myself, what would I rather be doing? Or what, what lights me up? What gets my soul on fire? And yeah. uh, because I started asking those questions, like I was getting more and more workshops. I don't know how, like the universe, some weird way. And it got to like a point where I was like, okay, clearly there's a demand and clearly I like it. So what is the problem here? <laughs> So I remember like, uh, like three weeks later, I bought a domain. Uh, I built like, I think it was like a one page website and I kind of just left it there. Um, and in January, when the year started, my business partner came back and I felt like in my stomach, like a gut that like, this is not like, I should not be here anymore. And then we had a conversation and it was like pretty easy conversation. And like before that conversation, I wrote in my journal, like, please, God, give me the right direction, right? Um, and again, you don't have to be religious. Like, I'm not the most religious person in the world, but I believe that there are, you have your angels, like my aunt is one of my angels. I, like, you have all these people around you who are there. And sometimes we're afraid to ask for help. So even though I didn't ask someone physically, I just asked, like, I just threw it, like, just give me the answer. And the answer came, and it was so easy and so natural. Um, that it didn't feel like like everything kind of lined up that makes sense so that that was the yeah. moment that i knew time to leave and time to move on wow 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 um i mean the common saying right that good is the enemy of great and very often we um, are so terrified of letting go of, of the good you know because of the sunk cost fallacy right it's like since we're putting so much effort into this thing then we should hold on to it and of course, uh, Vince Lombardi, I think it was the football coach that have this, uh, that, that was credited with this famous quote, you know, quitters never win and winners never quit. And I think that that's quite outdated, right? It's like, because we have so many options available to us nowadays, uh, knowing what to quit and when to quit is actually an art and a skill, right? Uh, because we cannot hang on to everything. Otherwise, we'll be like octopuses, right? We'll be, have, we'll be overwhelmed, right? So kudos to you for, for, for that. I think um, it reminds me of what Seth Godin says in the, in the book, The Dip, right? It's like knowing when exactly to quit. Um, quit what doesn't serve you, your words, <laughs> does it serve me? And, uh, and then to then choose what serves you. I thought that's so, so powerful. So, yeah. so, so powerful. A quick warning. This episode contains the sharing of the death of a loved one and the process of caring for them. If you're uncomfortable with this, then you may want to skip the second half of this episode. With that said, I hope you get to enjoy the meaningful messages that the rest of this episode brings. And you did talk about um, taking care of your aunt, right, who's um, ill, right? And um, would you be willing to share a little bit more? Because you did, you did divulge a little that that was quite a life-changing experience beyond just that conversation. How, in what way has that also shifted and moved you? Yeah. So I've taken care of uh, different people who've, who pass on. The, the most essential one was my father. Um, mm-hmm. When he passed on, I was 21. So it like, I didn't, I couldn't comprehend it. It was just so like, I didn't understand it. But I think with my aunt, because I had already experienced it the first time, and my aunt and I, we have a very special relationship. She was like the mother I never had. Like my mom just didn't have good role models of what it was like to be a parent. Um, so she, like, she tried her best. Like she did the best she could, but she just didn't give me 
that kind of like safety and that space to be able to, you know, talk about different ideas and, and all these different things. So for me with my aunt, like I felt like it was an honor to be able to give her just a little bit of what she gave me. And um, like when you like at that time also I'm I'm older, so then you realize like when my father was sick, when he passed away, like legally things were not in order, like money was not in order. They're just things that were just like just there. So with my aunt's case, it was really like, okay, how do we get our money house in order so that she can pass it on to her kids with the most amount of ease? So that requires required a lot of like difficult conversations. It had like conditions of, you know, if she goes into a coma, do we choose to keep her in with machines or do we let her out? I mean, it had the plug pulled out. And those are the levels of conversation that makes you realize that life is just so temporary. And oftentimes mm-hmm. the fear that we have, that we blow out of proportion, it's, it's compared to what? And when I look back at like, if it's compared to having cancer and dying, well, it's like, how scary is that? And I think that for me is like the biggest aspect where you can really let go because you realize actually in comparison to, to, to what? And oftentimes our comparison might be the wrong comparison. Wow, wow, wow. So it's, it's not really a conversation around death, but it really is a conversation around life, right? It's like the meaning of life. I think... Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of reminds me of um, um, this lady called Bronnie Ware. She's an Australian palliative nurse. Uh, she wrote this book, uh, The Five Regrets of the Dying. And um, yeah. I, I kind of feel like perhaps you had have, you have a moment there as well, right? Um, have, did you have any like great discoveries or great insights and ahas or revelations from this experience? So many. But essentially, it's always like, if I go back to my father, like when my father was sick, uh, the movie The Bucket List had come out. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who watched The Bucket List, it's about this like one old man who's about to die and him and his buddy goes out on and realize they're going to live their life that they want to live. And... You know, me being naive in my 20s, I asked my dad, Poppy, what do you want to do before you go? And I was expecting he would tell me some things, right? But instead, he gave me a weird look, like, what? And then he said, it's me and I've done it all. Oh. And I remember, thinking, I was like, you're 55. Like, what are you talking about? Just tell me the answer. Like, why are you being complicated? But like, probably like a year or two after he passed, I kept on thinking like, what did he mean by that? What did he mean that he done it all? And he all the dreams that he ever had, he already achieved. Yes, he could do some more, but he was living a life where he was, in your words, like wholehearted, where there was no need for him to like think otherwise. So the question I always have, always in my dad's words, like, can I say I've done it all? And I think probably about like nine years ago, I was like, actually, if I died right now, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> like I've lived a pretty great life. Yes, I still want to be a mother. I want to fall madly in love with somebody. I want to grow my business even bigger. But like, yeah. Wow. And of course, I'd like to just uh, fast forward a little, little um, to at the start of the pandemic, right? Um uh, when when the world went into lockdown and uh, there was just bad news all around and uh, you and a friend, right, a business partner or a friend, uh, came up with a, a card game. Um, so would you be willing to share with us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of like a timeline thing. <laughs> 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 my aunt literally passes away in December um, and then I moved, I moved into my own apartment uh, after she passed because there was no need for me to be there anymore. Um, and when I took care of my auntie, I made a conscious choice to take about a five to six month sabbatical, right? So that was me not doing much work and just kind of like living off of savings. And I come from a school of thought where you need to have six to 12 months of savings. I had it. I just spent it on going to China with her for medical treatment and so forth, right? No regrets there at all. But then I move in ready to go out and like get clients and make money and like go back on track. And I was having some really nice contracts being negotiated. Some really like if I start off the year with that, I don't have to worry the rest of the year kind of contracts. Um, And lo and behold, when you hit the shit, 
like somehow more shit pours out and all I discover is you have a global pandemic and a lot of those contracts were paused or frozen, right? Because budgets were frozen. So it went from like moving into this new apartment, spending a lot of money, decorating, paying the down payment, all this stuff. And then realizing that in February, I made $193 on a royalty check, which is a really like unpleasant place to be. And then to realize is that people were not responding back because they had to help their employees work from home, safety, like all these things. And realizing that this is not the way I'm going to make money right now. So my friend and I um, sat down together. Uh, we had like, I'm a trainer, so I have mahjong paper, you know, training paper. So we opened up, we put it on the wall, we wrote down, how can we make a million dollars? That was our wonderful idea. Um, and we wrote down, I think like 50, 60 ideas. And the next day we looked at it, we're like, which one do we do? <laughs> so we circled making a game. We're like, how hard can a big game be? Um, <laughs> which turns out harder than I thought, uh, like most things in my life. But I think it's also like, if you, if you underestimate how hard it is, you actually need to try. If you knew how hard it really would be, you wouldn't do that. So we ended up doing it within 10 weeks. We launched the game, put on Kickstarter. Within 12 weeks, we made about $22,000. Um, and now our game has sold thousands of decks uh, globally. Wow. And kids, like, it's kind of insane. Like, kids really love it. Wow, wow, wow. What, what do you, did you think was the, the key, um, you know, factor behind the success of this card game? Actually, I think it's a, several things. I think it was timing. I think it was relevance. I think that it was trying to reframe the pandemic. It was a really kind of funny game um, around it. And the fact that we were just fast to act. Like sometimes, one, one lesson I learned in university, in, in business school, um, I had a professor say, if you give me 10 euros, I'll give you 20. And I'm like, I don't have 10 euros, but I have 10 Egyptian pounds, which is equal to one euro. And then I gave him my 10 pounds and he gave me 20 euros. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, this is great. And he says, in life, you're going to have so many opportunities. So many. They're like passed out like paper, like everywhere. But the ones who take action are the ones who benefit and the ones who don't take action are the ones who don't benefit. Now, what was incredible about that game is the game was not actually the driver that like hit for me like revenue goals. But the game started with my clients, a conversation, because they saw me in the papers, they saw me feature something else. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Let's have a catch up call. And that led to more business. So it's funny that even though like I had a desire, it, it still led back something that I cared more about, which is also beautiful how everything's actually interconnected. Yeah. And- but what led you to come out with a game? Right? I mean, you, like like your professor says, right? There's so many opportunities out there, but why a game? We just picked it. Literally, we had like sixty ideas and we circled it. And I like playing games, so I was like, okay, I, like I'm pretty sure it won't be that hard. So sometimes it's just about choosing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know a very in-depth, life-changing answer. I think there's a pressure yeah. today for everything to be like so meaningful, but sometimes it's just yes. like a choice. And, and then you go with it and then you realize, oh, I love it or I hate it. And that's also a beautiful acknowledgement to where mm-hmm. you are. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I really like this because I think this reminds me of the quote, you know, do not ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come truly alive. Because yeah. what the world needs is people who come truly alive. And I really like the fact that you just follow your bliss, right? It's like you, you love playing games and you thought, hey, since I love gaming, I love playing games, let's just have fun with this, right? And there you go. I think sometimes here in, in, in our modern society, we are, like you said, right? We, we overthink things and we try to make everything so meaningful. And sometimes when we do something, the first question we ask ourselves is, how does it serve me? It's not just how does it serve me in terms of, am I going to have fun with this? Does it light me up from inside? But we ask questions, we ask questions like, how am I going to make money from this? So that's not a very good place to start with, right? Because if everything you do, you're just going to ask, how am I going to make money with this? Then you're not going to have fun. You're not going to have fun. You're, you're not going to come alive. You're, you're not going to put enough, you know, how do I say, you know, attraction behind that action. 
right? It's like we we take a lot of actions, but we just go running around in, uh, in circles instead of I, having having natural traction. Yeah, and like for us, it was interesting because because of that game, I started to learn about the gaming community in Singapore. Nice. We actually signed an um, agreement with the biggest distributor of games globally. Wow! And he tried to us in like like Australia, New Zealand was the biggest market for games, but the game didn't work. Like for them in Australia, New Zealand, it was too sensitive at the time because of the pandemic oh. and having a different reaction than in Asia, which is more educational. So then it also gave me context that for my next game, I am not going to pick things that are going to be sensitive and topic. I'll pick something that's a bit more generic so I can go ahead and do that in a much bigger scale. Um, so the, the game I'm having next is actually about relationships and couples. Oh, uh, that's like an easier way, but with the aspiration to go even more and to sell much more card decks because of what I learned in the first game. Cool, cool, cool. So from gaming, I'd like to just uh, move into um, storytelling because, you know, I'm big on storytelling. I love I, I, I love storytelling. I love li- reading stories and I love teaching storytelling as well. So I'd just like to, you know, um, sh- share ideas and exchange ideas with you. How did you get into storytelling? So for me, when I look at it is, I think everyone around us is a natural storyteller, right? We're born that way. We're, we're designed. We're humanly triggered for some of these storytellings. But the area I started to realize that I loved a lot and it comes to the world of storytelling is how do we actually be persuasive to get people to say yes to us? And that actually started off in my teens because when I was a teenager, my mom, who is really effective, okay, and I say yes to her. She's like so effective at doing that. I don't know what she does, but she puts a spell on you and you say yes to her. Um, and I remember like watching and observing what she was doing I had to learn like patterns that was actually getting in the way. So since probably 14, I've been studying it for myself. And that's also the reason why in my first job, I got promoted three times, about three times salary increases and so forth. Um, I've been able to get more clients to say yes, to say yes. So I started to look at like, what did I do differently from me being that shy, reserved girl to what did I have to learn to get more yeses? And because I study the brain and psychology as a background, I'm always looking at like, what is the patterns that are going on and how can we use that to help someone move forward with that? So if I look back, it all makes sense. I even have a degree in psychology of communications, like totally makes sense. <laughs> but until I had my storytelling agency, where we were doing video stories for companies. And when I tried to request for that, I'm like, actually, this is like my jam. Like I do it naturally for people i help them figure out what's wrong how can i break it down and teach it in a way that's easy and simple um and i've been very lucky i've been having some incredible clients clients that i had written down like this would be pretty cool to work with and now they're on my roster list which is amazing considering that like i was not any of those things that i was that i am today actually wow i really love it i really like how you combine stories with selling story selling like storytelling for persuasion. And for me, I um, personally, I have a slightly different niche. I talk about storytelling for leadership. How do you tell stories so that people are attracted to follow your leadership? And I am really studying the science behind, you know, why are we so connected with certain, for example, superheroes? And why are we not connected with other superheroes? Why are we connected with certain characters, certain personalities, uh, and not uh, or turned off by other personalities? It's all because we all have a very different heroic archetype in every one of us. And when we see someone with the same heroic archetype, you know, we're attracted to that. We relate to that. We're attracted to that. And we want to be like that. So I think, um, I think we, have a lot of, uh, we have a lot in common and also a lot of areas where we can really you know, uh, create magic. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. So we're coming to, uh, towards the end of our uh, podcast uh, interview. So we'd just like to um, have some quick fire questions to end a podcast, which we ask all of our guests at the end of the, each episode. Um, so I know you have, you have always been asking questions, right? So this first question is this. This, this time the shoe is on the other foot. Yasmin, what's the most powerful question you have ever been asked before? I think it was a question from my auntie, which was like, when are you going to quit? Because that was, that was the, 
to answer that question, I had to ask so many other questions and answer them before I could forward. Wow. I think the word here is surrender. I think you needed to surrender. Yeah. Surrender is so much more spiritually deep than just the idea of quitting. So the next question is this, right? Who's a mentor or supporter who has made all the difference in your life? I know you've answered a couple of them in this in this podcast, but maybe a, a couple of others, yeah. I would actually say Temer. Like, I think the fact that he was the first one to to ask me, like, difficult questions um, and to also see me in a way that I never saw myself. And I've had so many mentors. I, I'm always investing in mentors. I always have, you know, mentors, coaches I'm working with. But it's just like that first level of getting on that ladder and like pushing in the right direction. And like I'm really grateful that I get to play that role in other people's lives, but I'm but he was the igniter to show me that was possible for me. Very nice, very nice. Um what is here's a third question, right? What is one of the most courageous things you've done in your life that that has made all the difference? It's really hard for me to answer that question because I don't think it's courageous. I just think like, yeah, let's do it. And then everyone else tells me it's courageous. <laughs> like, does that make sense? Like even like quitting my business, my job to get a, to start my business, everyone's like, that's so courageous. I'm like, really? Is it? Because for me, having lost my dad at a young age, like I always just think like, would I regret not doing it? So it doesn't feel crazy. It just feels like it's something that I will just like, it's yes or no. And if it's going to be a regret, I just say yes. And I will do it anyway. So it's hard for me to answer that question. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I think um, the way you see, you frame things really it comes from a place not of fear, but of uh, a fear of not doing. So it's like you, the, the, the biggest fear, the bigger fear for you is regret rather than a fear of, oh, what's the, what's the repercussion? What's the worst thing that can happen? So yeah. I think when you're not bounded by that fear, so it doesn't come across as courage for you. Maybe it comes across as, I don't know if I paraphrase correctly, maybe adventure, maybe it's like um, curiosity, like, yeah, let's just do it. Like, like literally, like, no, I think I'm very honored to, to have this, but I've got to experience in my life three times watching someone take their last breath. And when you see that and you see... Like, it's just one second and it's gone. Like, one second. It's a very different way of looking at the world. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Um, so, any, any on a more um, positive note, like, what, what's most exciting for you in the next, the next uh, 2023? Yes. So, I'm so excited about this. Um, so, last December, I had, like, yeah, December that just passed, I had this desire to work with more entrepreneurs and to help them with their sales process. I think specifically when I read that statistic about women, I was like, that's so messed up. Like, I don't yeah. think that's cool. Um, so I built a small mini course called the Sales Power Hour, which is all around how do you ask the right questions and also the tools that you have to be able to build and scale your business. And next year, I'm also going to be launching a group program called Systems at Scale. So I'm very excited about adding this new addition in my business to work with more entrepreneurs. Um, I'm very, very excited about that. And I just heard TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're going to uh, rock it. My TikTok journey has just begun, which with how many followers do I have right now? Let's kind of see. Uh, let's see. I think I have like, I don't even know. Where's my account? 48 followers. So I'm looking forward to nailing some of these videos and uh, putting myself out there. Fantastic, fantastic. You are starting um, your ladder of believability on uh, TikTok. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll rock it. You have, you have such a great personality. And that just segues very nicely um, to this this final question, of course, is um, if our listeners like to uh, find out more about you and to learn more about the work that you do, how can we reach you and where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at the salesstorymethod.com. Uh, you can, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, on TikTok. And if you want to learn more about your sales process and how to become more effective at doubling or tripling or quadrupling your businesses, then check out the salespowerhour.com. 
Wow, thank you, Yasmin, very much for, for being on the podcast today. Um, your sharing is so inspiring, it's, it's so insightful, and I've got so many like light bulb moments. I was just tr- struggling to really contain myself <laughs> throughout this past one hour, really. And so um, thank you so much for your generous sharing. And I oh, hope I to see you again very soon. All right. Bye, Cohen. Ciao. Thanks for being part of this heartwarming conversation today. If you've enjoyed the show as much as I have creating it for you, I really appreciate it if you can leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you won't miss a future episode? To the next episode, stay wholehearted.